Now this evening we come to verse 14 of Matthew chapter 8. So let's just kind of jump right in there together. In verse 14 it says this. It says, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother, that's his mother-in-law, his wife's mother, lying sick with the fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus had just finished teaching in the synagogue. And they had told him about the illness of Peter's mother-in-law. So, Peter, so Jesus comes to Peter's house. He sees his mother-in-law lying sick there with the fever. And he touched her. And the fever left her. And immediately she got up and she served them. A couple of things to consider there. Peter was married. It says his wife. There are some people who would suggest that Peter was not married and he was wholly devoted to the Lord, which he was, but the scripture here clearly indicates this scripture along with Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4 all tell us that Peter had a wife. Can't have a mother-in-law if you don't have a wife. It says there clearly his wife's mother, who by the way was living with them in Capernaum. They were living there, they were residing there together. Now, interesting thing, John's gospel tells us where Peter was from. Anybody know where Peter was from? Peter was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida. It's, there, it's another, another village there on the Sea of Galilee. But John says he was, from, he was from Bethsaida. The word Bethsaida means house of fishing, which goes along with Peter's occupation. He was a fisherman. He was from the, the town called Bethsaida, which is called house of fishing. But if Jesus had set up his headquarters in Capernaum, it means at some point... Peter moved his entire family, including his mother-in-law, to Capernaum. Why? To be closer to Jesus. He had given up his fishing days and he wanted to be near Jesus. He wanted to get to be where Jesus was, so he moved his entire family, including his mother-in-law, from Bethsaida to Capernaum so that he could be closer to Jesus. Understand the implication there. Peter left his place of occupational prosperity to be closer to the Lord. He left his good job. He left his future. He left his family business. He left his promising career because he wanted to be closer to Jesus. And Jesus was in Capernaum. So that's where he would go. Would you ever consider such a thing? Would you ever consider leaving your place of occupational prosperity simply to be closer to the Lord? To be near to what God was doing in your life or perhaps the ministry that he was calling you to? Would you be willing to give up the very security of, financial, of finances, of financial security because the Lord has called you or instructed you or just simply because you wanted to be closer to the Lord? That's what's taking place here. Sometimes I believe we can get so focused on our careers that it's our career that defines our life and not our Savior. We can become so focused on what we need to make to survive, what we need to earn for retirement, what we need to accomplish in business, that we never give the right heart or the right mind to the Lord, saying, Lord, what is it that you have for me? Would you have me move somewhere else? Sometimes even when our churches, I can remember a time in my life where Rebecca and I moved from one city to another so that we could be closer to work. We wanted to, I wanted to be closer to my work. It made perfect sense uh, logically. Why, why not be closer to work? I could drive less and I could be home more. But what we never paid attention to was where were we going to go to church? You see, we, we figured we'd move and then we would find a church. You know what we found out? 
the church we were leaving was much better than any church we found near our home. We found ourselves stuck. We spent a year going from church to church to church to church to church, and we visited every church in our little town that we lived in, and we couldn't find a church. Finally, we settled on a Calvary Chapel that was about 30 to 35 minutes away. We had little kids. That was a long drive at the time. But we settled on it because that's where we could serve the Lord. If I had it to do all over again, I would have found a church and then found a house. Because I wanted to be close to where I could serve the Lord. And it bugged me that I had to drive so far before I could serve the Lord. And, 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 and it precluded us from doing certain things throughout the week because we, we were so far away from where God was working. And, and not that he wasn't working in other areas, but it's where, where we were to call to serve him. I would have done it that differently. I would have, if I had to move today, and I, and I moved to Cumberland to start a church, so I wasn't concerned with that. But if I had to move someplace, I would encourage you, if you have to move, find a church and then move near the church. It's better to drive to work than it is to church because then you can serve the Lord near your home without it becoming too much of a burden. Now, I like the fact that in our scripture here in our passage, Peter's mother-in-law was touched by the Lord and healed and then she immediately began to serve. There was no, no time to recover. There was no need for that. It should be the same way with us. When the Lord touches you, when he heals you, when you realize you're forgiven from your sin, when the Lord touches you in that way, it should create an, create an immediate desire to serve other people in you. You might not know what to do. You might not even know very much, but it should, there should be this desire, I want to serve the Lord in somehow. How can I serve? Even in small things, even in little ways, how can I serve the Lord? She gets healed and immediately gets up. Don't we want to see other people touched in your life the same way the Lord's touched you? Don't you want to see them, him touch someone else's life? Do you know the reason that I teach the scriptures here? The reason I stand up in front of you, the Lord's called me to? But I want you to experience what I've experienced with the Lord. I want you to know what it's like to take, someday take a step of faith. And, and you're not going to start churches. But, you know, as a church, we're called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I want you to step out and fulfill your ministry the Lord's called you to in whatever that looks like and know what it means to walk with the Lord. I know what the scriptures have done in my life, and I want to see them do the same thing in yours. That's why I do it, so, so that you can experience what I've experienced. We don't serve because of obligation or compulsion. We serve other people because we want them to experience what we have experienced in the Lord. And look at verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out spirits with the word. And he healed all who were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. I always find it interesting that the miracle healers of today, the miracle workers, the ones you see doing the healing services, they're on television. I always find it interesting that they need to take their show on the road. They need to move from town to town and place to place. When Jesus was healing, the people were coming to him. He couldn't get out of his, he was staying in Capernaum. He couldn't get out of his front door because there was people there that were demon possessed and needed to be healed. You see, the healing that Jesus was doing was true. There was no need to take the show on the road because everybody that was coming was being healed. He couldn't get away. Can you imagine what it would be like today if someone actually had the power to heal anyone they chose to heal? Anyone. Do you realize that if, if, we had, if I had that power, and I don't think I could handle that power, to be honest with you, but if I had that power, that gift, do you know that this church would be full? This street would be lined with people? All the way down Industrial Boulevard would be full of people. Because they would know something. If, if I could just 
hear him. If he would just heal me, he could do it. That's the power that Jesus had. People are flocking to him. It wasn't he had to create, he didn't have to set up a tent. He didn't have to create a commercial. He didn't have to market it. It just happened. People were coming because there was a result of what he was doing. He was healing them. We, here we see demon-possessed people and people that were sick being brought to him, and he healed all of them, every one of them. Not one did he go, well, I'm sorry, that's too tough for me. I can't handle that one. Did you notice what time it was? It said it was evening. It was evening. It was, it was time to sit in the easy chair and pull the newspaper out and turn on the TV. I know he didn't have TV. But it was time to relax. The workday was supposed to be over. He was off the clock. It doesn't work that way in ministry, does it? There was no getting away. He never complains about it. Ministry was going to go on. There was people that needed him. He never says, no, no, get away. I need my downtime. No, no, healing closed. No, no, this, this service is over. You'll have, to see, you'll have to catch me in Texas next week. You'll have to catch me at the next service. He just faithfully ministers to all those who were there. And when it comes to the demons, well, that's not something we like to talk about, is it? That's kind of weird for us. No, no, I don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want to talk about that. Well, if there were people who were demon-possessed in that day, isn't it logical? Doesn't it stand to reason there's people who are demon-possessed today? Many of those are covered up with psychological problems and filled with psychological medication. And I'm not saying everybody that has a psychological issue is demon-possessed. Don't, don't make that mistake. But it, it, we, we would be... Uh, remiss if we didn't think that there was actually people who were demon possessed many of you have seen people or run in contact with people as a police officer i have i run into contact with people that are demon possessed well what do we do pray for them ask them if they want to accept christ well how do i get rid of a demon it's easy all you have to do to get rid of a demon is get them to believe on jesus christ when christ moves in whatever else is living there moves out well no i saw a guy on youtube and he had this thing go no no that you don't have to do it that way when Christ moves into somebody's heart and they become a believer in Jesus Christ, the demon cannot stay. He has to move out. There's no cohabitation going on there in somebody's life. They're not equal warring over someone's spirit. When someone accepts Christ, anything in them moves out. It has to be that way. I do not believe that a believer in Jesus Christ can be demon-possessed. It would make no sense. How could that be possible? It, 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 the power of the Lord Jesus Christ moves in you. The Holy Spirit moves in you. The Holy Spirit comes upon you. How could a demon penetrate that? Don't mistake that for demon, demonically oppressed. Because it doesn't mean that a believer can't be demonically oppressed. And I'm not going to go into the whole difference tonight and what it is, but it doesn't mean that there's no, that, that a demonic influence can't oppress somebody or try to bring them down or try to influence their life in a certain way. That's certainly possible. That the, if the Lord would allow that in somebody's life, it's possible. But I want you to notice how Jesus deals with them here. It says he cast out the spirits with a word. With a word. No big dog and pony show. No begging. No, no pleading. No screaming. Just a word. He just casts them out with a word. It's just a simple word. He's not giving us a prescription for casting out demons. But what he's doing here is amazing. He's putting his deity on full display. He's healing everybody. He's casting out every demon. He's showing that he has power over illness and power over disease. He has power over the spiritual realm. Who could this be? He's putting his deity on full display for them to see. Matthew points out that he healed all the sick people. He cast out all the demons. Who else could this be but God? Or the Messiah or the promised Messiah? And then, then Matthew points back to the messianic prophecies of Isaiah 53. 
It says in verse 17, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities, infirmities, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Writing to the Jewish people, Matthew points out that Jesus' ministry is a fulfillment of this prophecy about that Isaiah wrote about the coming Messiah. Notice that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy during his life. Matthew's saying he's fulfilling it now as he's on earth during his life in his earthly ministry. You see, some people have suggested that there is physical healing in the death of Jesus on the cross, which there is spiritual healing for all those that would believe, and there is physical healing, but they have suggested that every believer who has just enough faith if you have enough faith, then you can tap into this physical healing that Jesus won for you on the cross. You have to claim it, they would say. You have to claim it. it has to, you have to go after it. And if you don't claim it, if you don't get healed, then it's a result of your lack of faith. In other words, he did the work. Now you have to get healed. But if you don't get healed, then it's because you don't believe enough. That's not what the scripture teaches. That goes against what the, what the Bible teaches. Certainly faith is a, is, certainly faith is necessary in healing. And all those who call upon the name of Jesus will be healed, healed spiritually. But he's not obligated to heal everyone physically. It has nothing to do with your faith. Faith is a, is a component of it. it and although it's required, a lack of faith doesn't necessarily indicate, or, or a lack of healing doesn't indicate a lack of faith. It doesn't work that way. Although there are many people who would have you believe that. And he goes on here in verse 18. He's going to give us a look at the cost of discipleship. Verse 18 says, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. The great multitudes, where were they coming from? All the people getting healed. Verse 19, then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have, have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus, he's working late. He's working overtime, if you will. It's evening. He, the people are pressing in. The crowds are pressing in. But he also knew when it was time to withdraw. He tells the apostles he gave the command there in verse 18, let's depart to the other side. It's time to get in the boat. It's time to go to the other side. It's time to go across the Sea of Galilee. Now, anybody who serves the Lord in ministry, especially in full-time ministry, needs to learn and understand this concept. You see, if you serve in ministry, even if it's a part-time ministry, even if it's part-time, you'll find out that, yeah, you're going to work late. Yeah, that's going to require long hours. In ministry, our week is not defined with a start time and an end time. I don't just get to work 9 to 5 or 8 to 4 or 9 to 6, and I'm off on Saturdays. A pastor doesn't just work 45 minutes on Sundays and 45 minutes on Thursday nights or whatever midweek service. There's a lot that happens throughout the week. It's not just a start time and an end time. My week as a pastor can't be contained within 40 hours. It's impossible. I, there's no way that I could be a pastor of our church, our size, in just 40 hours. It takes more time than that. It, it, it requires more time. And I have to know that that's okay. 
But I also have to know, and anyone else in ministry needs to know, when it's time to take a break, when it's time to withdraw, when it's time to go to the other side, when it's time to pull back and say, I need a little bit of downtime. I need to, to some time alone with the Lord. I need to get away. We must know when that time is. If not, what happens? You get burned out. I forget what the numbers are of pastors leaving the ministry, but it's staggering how many pastors are leaving the ministry because they're burned out. I'm not burned out at all. I can honestly tell you that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't find the church as a burden. I don't find the ministry as a burden. I, I don't, I, maybe someday, I, I can't say I never will, but I can tell you that you know, the Lord has promised that his burden is easy, his yoke is light, and I believe as long as I'm walking faithfully with the Lord, I can handle everything that comes across my path because he's the one handling it for me. I don't, I don't have that problem, but there are times where I know I need to get away. And there are also times where I've gone many, many weeks without a day off because that's what the ministry requires. That's what happens. And the Lord is faithful to strengthen you when those times are necessary. But there's also a time to get away and rest. In ministry, our lives are planned around the ministry. We don't plan our ministries around our lives. In other words, my family, my life, we, we, we exist. We're here in Cumberland. Our life revolves around the ministry, the church here at Calvary Chapel, Cumberland. You say, well, that means you don't have a family life. No, we do have a family life. But this is important. We found out very early on there were things that we had to cut out of our family life because it was cutting into ministry things. My kids couldn't play sports the way some of the other kids were because I realized I was canceling things at church so I could make soccer practice. I had to make those distinctions. We're here to plan a church because it's what the Lord called my entire family to do. My whole family is involved in the ministry here, not just me. I might be the pastor, my wife is by my side, but my children are involved in the ministry here at, here at Calvary Chapel too. They're going to receive rewards in heaven for what they do here and for what, how they serve and, and for just simply being here and supporting us in this. Our ministries, our lives are, our ministries are, our lives are planned around the ministry. It's not the other way around. It can't be. As Jesus here is commanding the disciples to get in the boat, to go to the other side, Mark's gospel tells us that many people were also getting into boats and attempting to follow them. And as this was happening, there's two men who found it necessary to approach Jesus, and they, they just they wanted to pledge their loyalty to him. They wanted to tell him that they're with him, they're behind him, and I'll be with you in a moment. Let me just take care of my father. Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. I've kind of learned something about that. When someone says to me, this is the best church, I'll, uh, this is going to be my church, I'll be back, I usually never see him again. I, I kind of learned that. I don't know why. It just happens that way. Oh, I love church. It was my first time. It was great. I'll be back. And I go, oh, it's nice seeing you. you know? And it, it just happens that way sometimes. But these two guys, they, pray, they, wanna, they want to make known, we've got to tell Jesus our loyalty. The first one is a scribe. He's an expert in the law. And what does he say? He says, teacher. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I am right there with you. Why would he say this? What, what, he, he might even have, he might be thinking this in his heart, but what's the purpose for, for saying this? Why, why would he approach Jesus through all the crowds and I gotta tell you something? And here's what I'm gonna tell you. No matter where you go, I'm going to follow you. Why would he do it? Because he wants to see Jesus' reaction to his commitment. He was a scribe. He was well thought of. He was in high society. He was, he was popular. He, people wouldn't, he, had, he had a social status to upkeep. And he probably wanted Jesus to say, hey, everybody, listen up. We've got a scribe on our team now. He's here. Scribe, whatever his name was, he's with us. He's going to be one of us from now on. That, that's what he probably expected, something like that. 
Listen, just because somebody makes a strong profession doesn't mean they have a strong commitment. Just because somebody makes a bold statement or a bold profession of faith doesn't mean they're really committed. It doesn't mean that it'll even last. Impressive words of affirmation are easy to make, especially when you really don't understand the cost of that commitment. You see, he said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. But he didn't really understand the cost. He didn't count the cost of discipleship, which involves self-denial, sacrifice, and quite possibly suffering. No, no, his claim was, I will follow you as long as it enhances my personal status. I'll follow you wherever you go. He wasn't willing to pay the price that was necessary. He merely wanted to add excitement to his life. He wanted to have the prestige of being identified with a popular leader. After all, Jesus' popularity was soaring, and I want to be identified with him. Or perhaps some other self-centered objective. And I love Jesus' response. You can always tell the true heart of the question by the response. He doesn't, Jesus, when he responds, he doesn't address the statement. He addresses the real issue. Look what he says. Foxes have holes. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase a little bit. Foxes have holes they can call their own. And birds of the air, they have nests to which they can return and rest. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, he's telling, telling the man, he said, do you realize you just pledged your allegiance to a man who has fewer physical comforts in life than a fox and a bird? You just pledged your allegiance. You said you'd follow me anywhere, and I don't even have a home. I don't have a, I don't have a house to call my own. Even the fox has a hole to live in. The bird has a nest to sleep in. I don't have any of that. I don't have, I don't have a thing of that. The man did not need to respond by making a profession. He needed to demonstrate his commitment by simply following. He didn't need to say how great he was going to follow. He just needed to do it. It wasn't about what he said. It was about what he did. The second man comes along and he tells Jesus. He says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me go and bury my, let me go bury my dad first. Let me go bury my father first. And that seems a little rough in Jesus' response, but the indication here is not that his father had passed away. You know, in, in that world, you had to be buried before sundown or before sunup. You had to be buried right away. There was no embalming. There was an immediate burial. There was a time of grieving of about 30 days afterwards. The indication here is not that his father had passed away at all, but that as a, as a son, he was responsible for caring for his father until he passed away. That could be many years. It could be years, years from that time. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, let me fulfill my obligation to my family that way I still get my inheritance, because if you didn't fulfill the obligation to your family, you've got either, either uh, less of a inheritance, inheritance or no inheritance at all. So let me fulfill my obligations here on this earth, and then I will follow you. Jesus responds by saying, why don't you allow the dead to bury their own dead? You say, wow, that's kind of, that's heartless. How could he say such a thing? This was a proverbial figure of speech back then. It meant, let the world take care of the things of the world. The spiritually dead can take care of themselves. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to give up the things of the world, is what it meant. It's going to cost you something. Wow. Obviously here, Jesus was not afraid to discourage these disciples. He wasn't afraid to tell them like it is. He wasn't just looking for anybody to volunteer. He was weeding people out. He was interested more in quality than in quantity. Oh, if we could learn that as a church. How, how do we tell the success of a church? How many people come? What's the attendance? 
People ask me that all the time, you know, people I meet outside here. How many people come to your church? I tell them between two and 3,000. And they look at me and they go, really? That's great. They don't, they, no, two and 3,000. I don't say 2,000 and 3,000, between two and 3,000. But yet all of a sudden they get impressed when they hear that 3,000 number. It might be 10 people. What difference does it make? How, what difference does it make how big a church is? It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if it's a church of 3,000 or 10,000 or, or three people. The pastor is the pastor and he has the same responsibility before God, whether it's, how, doesn't matter how big his church is. But somehow in our human minds we link it to, oh, he's, he must be doing something right. He's got lots of people following. What if it's a lot of people following that aren't even really following the Lord? What if it's just people that are going to church for entertainment? And the, and the pastor with three or ten. Jesus had twelve. What if it's just a, a quality ten or twelve people that somebody is discipling? They grow up to change the world. They step out in their ministries and they, they fulfill what God called them to do. Which one's more successful? A smaller pastor would be more successful. It's not about how big or small a church is. about what, what are the people doing? Are the people growing there? He says, let the dead bury their own dead. One commentator said this. He said, nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of experience. Wow. Maybe the church should weed out a few of those people who are professing Christians but living an outward life of sin. Whoa. That's, that, don't, don't you, do you want me to come back to this place? I'm not saying that we're going to do that tonight, but maybe we should let people, take people that are on the fence and help them get on to one side or the other. Maybe we shouldn't just, maybe we should be a little more stern. Maybe we should hold them accountable. Will you hold your Christian friends accountable for what they put on Facebook? Will you confront them when they put something that's sinful and, or, or do we just kind of, the reason I don't get on Facebook is because I can't keep my mouth shut sometimes. Because I want to say stuff. And I realize that if I say something, I'm going to cause a big problem. So I don't even want to go on there. But if I'm on there, I feel obligated to call somebody and say, hey, I just saw that you posted this on Facebook. What are you thinking? But do we just kind of turn our heads and go, ah, you know, God's still working on them. You know, there's a fine line there. What do we do? Do we address it? Or do, we, do we help them? Or do we just go, ah, it's okay. No big deal. No big deal. You know, what Jesus is saying here, he's weeding disciples out. None of the, the, neither of these men are heard from again in Scripture. We don't know what happened to them. We don't, th all we know is they weren't ready yet. They, they didn't follow. They, they weren't there. They disappear without further mention. You see, I think it's interesting that Christ is making it known what it means to follow him. He's making it clear. It, it means leaving behind the things of the world. It, it might mean sacrificing your family and your friends or perhaps moving from another job to another place. It might, it, might, it might mean drastic change in your life. Are you willing to follow? Are you willing to do what the Lord calls you to do? Are you willing to say no to your flesh in some area because it's interfering with your relationship with him? Or do we just let it go on and go, eh, he understands. He accepts it. It's no big deal. Listen, the Lord takes sin seriously. You're not... Be sure your sin will find you out, the scripture tells us. It's, it's, it will come to light. Don't doubt that someday. Jesus was merely being honest about what it meant to follow. He was merely telling the truth. This is what it means to follow me. And he was a perfect example of a man who did not care about the things of the world. He's never in a hurry. Never worried about where he was going to sleep. 
he just found a place to sleep wherever he needed to, whenever he needed to, whatever moment. He just, he just went through life following the things of God, doing the will of my Father, he would say. Just doing the things of the Lord. And I often wonder how we, and I can speak to myself here, how we get so busy, so frustrated, so overcome, when all we have to do is what God asks us to do. And I wonder how many things we could weed out of our life that are creating our stress and our busyness that God has never asked us to do. And we go, Lord, help me with this. And he goes, I didn't ask you to do that. All I want you to do is be a mom. All I want you to do is be a husband or a wife and, and be a, I don't know, an HVAC guy or a plumber. Or, a, or all I want you to do is be a nurse and a mom and a wife. And I want you to minister somehow in this area or that area. I want you to homeschool your kids. I want Whatever it is that he asks you to do. But yet sometimes we pile all these things on and it creates all this turmoil in our life. And he goes, I didn't ask you to do that. Just, just focus on what I ask you to do. I have a problem with that, you know that? I'm always going back in my life trying to figure out what did I bring in that I'm not supposed to have there? Because I always get to a point where I've got too much going on and every time I get there, I've got to look and go, all right, Lord, what is it that you've called me to and what is it that I just volunteered for? And inevitably, I always quit all these things that I thought were good ideas, but all they brought into my life was busyness. You know what busy stands for? Being under Satan's yoke. Being under Satan's yoke. Busyness takes away from our family it takes away from the Lord. If you're busy, make sure you're busy with the things the Lord has called you to. Not just busy to be busy. Let's go on to verse 23. As Jesus get in, gets into the boat with his disciples. Verse 23. Now when he got into the boat, into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea. So the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? In 1986, the water on the Sea of Galilee was very low. It had gone lower than it had been in a long time. Two Jewish brothers saw something sticking out of the sand. Do you know what it was? It was a first century fishing boat. They recovered it. They've raised it. It's sitting in a museum. We saw it when we were there in Israel. It's a boat about 26 and a half feet long. It's about seven and a half feet wide. It, the sides on it aren't real high. It's a relatively small boat that you wouldn't want to be in during rough waters. This is the type of boat he got into. Long and narrow with his apostle. apostles. Matthew tells us a tempest arose on the sea. And the boat was covered with waves. You know what that means? It means it was filling with water. It's filling with water. When I was out on the Sea of Galilee, most recently, and the last time I was there, I asked the boat captain about the waves. Because I was curious. Because the day that we were out, it was calm. It was beautiful. It was, it was peaceful. And I said, hey, how big do the waves get here? Because they easily get six to eight feet. He goes, when the wind comes out of the north off Mount Hermon and it hits the Golan Heights there on the east side, he goes, the waves can build up. We were in, the last day we were in Jerusalem, it was very windy. He goes, the waves can build up there. Six to eight feet is not uncommon for these kinds of waves, for this, for this area. It's important to remember that these were fishermen. It wasn't uncommon for them to be on a boat. They would have experienced the normal type of waves that the Sea of Galilee would have. 
They, were, they, were, they, they did this every night. This was their career. This was their livelihood. They knew the waters. They understood. It's not that big. You think you could almost swim across it when you look. It's not a, you can see from one side to the other during the day with no problem. It wouldn't be a, it, you really couldn't swim across it. It's too big for that. It's about 33 miles of shoreline, about six miles across, I guess. But you can see across the other side. It's not, it's not that overwhelmingly big. But apparently, the storm that night was greater than something they'd been in before. It was dumping water into the boat. The word for tempest there means a violent action of the surface of a body of water as the result of high waves caused by a strong wind. That's what it means. Surf was up on the Sea of Galilee that night. And the disciples, the fishermen, they were scared to death. Literally, scared to death. The waves are breaking over the boat. The boat's filling with water. The disciples are scared to death. What was Jesus doing? Sleeping. Sleeping in the back of the boat on a cushion, another gospel tells us. He was sleeping. You think, well, he was probably tired. I look at it and go, well, he was exhausted. He spent all day ministering. It's hard work healing. It's hard work casting out demons. He was exhausted. He was sleeping there. While they are in fear for their life, he's sleeping. Or was he just simply at perfect peace in the face of a storm? Was he at perfect peace as the storm raged around him? They're in fear for their life, and Jesus is asleep in perfect peace as the same storm rages around both of them. Two very different reactions. They're both in the same physical circumstance. They're scared to death. He's resting peacefully. Two completely different responses in the same circumstance. Isn't that the way that Christians should behave when the storms of life hit us? The world would behave one way, the follower of Christ should be at peace with the storm. Oh, it's so easy to say up here. Oh, it's so simple for me to tell you that. But yet it's so hard to do when we find ourselves in the storm that life is bringing us. I understand that. What happens is disciples came to him in verse 25. They awoke him and they said, Lord, save us. We're dying. We're perishing. I bet, because I think they're like us, I bet they had tried every one of their human solutions to this problem. I bet they had their buckets bailing. They had their rows rowing. They had their sails down. Whatever it was that they would normally do in a storm, they had done it all. And they had come to the place where we're dead. We're dead. We got no hope. That's it. We can't, we can't make it. We're, we're dead. And they wake him up. I can't believe you're sleeping. How could you sleep through this? If they had the confidence in Jesus that Jesus had in the Father, they would have been calm in the face of the storm. But after they had tried everything, after they had exhausted everything, they woke him up. We, I know what we can do. Let's go get Jesus. Don't we do the same thing? The storm hits, and you call your friend for advice. You call your doctor. You call whoever it is. You get all this stuff together. Nobody's got an answer. I know. Let's pray. That's what we do. We do the same exact thing. We're just like them. Let's pray. When you face the storms of life, where's your confidence? Is it in the things of the world? Is it in the money to get you out of trouble? Is it in the doctors to fix your health? Is it in the, in the doctors to, to make you better? Is it in the counselor to fix your marriage? Is it in AA or NA to solve your addiction problems? Or is it in your God, the creator of the universe? Where is it that you look for your 
hope in the midst of a storm. When your confidence, when your hope and your trust are in God, then you can relax in the storm. Then you can sit peacefully, sleep peacefully. After all, didn't Jesus tell them they were going to the other side? Didn't he say, get in the boat, we're going to the other side? We're set sail. Aren't we going to the other side? Hadn't he already told them that? In Mark, he said, let us cross over to the other side. In other words, come on, guys, we're going over to the other side. He goes to sleep. They start paddling over. The storm hits. They forgot the word of God. They forgot the word of God in the storm. He told them they were going. He told them the end. He told them the, where they were going to finally make it to. He'd given them the outcome. Think of it this way. He had given them the promise, but they forgot the promise of the word of God. And in the storm, they couldn't see the promise of the word of God because the waves were too high, because the boat was filling up, because their circumstances were too great. They never remembered the promise of God, which was, we're going to the other side. Had they remembered the promise of God, what could they have done? They could have kicked back and go, man, this is going to be fun. I can't wait to see what the Lord does here. I can't wait to see how he gets us out of this one. This boat's filling up fast. We're in trouble. Maybe they all would have got up and walked on water. How cool would that have been? They just walked to the other side. We know it's, been, it's coming, right? But they didn't. They forgot. As a Christian, hasn't the Lord already informed us the outcome of our life? Hasn't he already told us what's coming? Eternity with him. Don't we know that's coming? Bypassing judgment, ruling and reigning with him. Then why should we be so fearful of a storm that might damage us or hurt us? Why should we be so concerned with it? And you go, yeah, I know, Rob, that's easy to say. It's an easy concept, to, and I understand it, but it's so hard to live. It's so difficult because when the storm hits, what do we do? Exactly what they did. But I want you to know something. I've been like the disciples, and if you've been like the disciples, I want you to know you're in good company. Even the greatest saints of God have at times forgotten their heavenly Father and been overcome by their circumstances. Let me read to you. What the psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 10. He cried this. He said about the Lord. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The writer of Psalms 44 lamented. He said, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? In other words, why are you sleeping, God, in the midst of trouble? Why are you sleeping? He's not sleeping. Even Isaiah was dismayed at God's seemingly inability to help his people. He said this in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 51. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of God. Awake as in the ancient days in the generations of old. Just like the disciples during the storm, he wondered why God slept while his people were perishing. God wasn't sleeping. God was working. God's plan was unfolding. Why would it be any different in the storms in our life? Why would it be any different? When the storms in life come, the Lord's not just bringing you to them and abandoning you. He's going to go through them with you. He's going to be there to help you endure it, to get you to the other side. Look how Jesus responds to the disciples as they wake him up and say, we're dying. He says in verse 26, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Jesus gently rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith with a simple question. Why are you fearful? Why are you fearful? You ever been fearful? We need to hear that ring in your mind. Why are you fearful, O oh, you of little faith? 
Why are you fearful? What is it that's afraid? What are you afraid of? Didn't I give you a promise? Didn't I tell you that we're going to the other side? Didn't I confirm who you are in Christ? Didn't I confirm your eternal future with me? Haven't I confirmed these things with you? What are you so afraid of? You see, when our faith is in God, there's no room for fear. Because you realize he's greater than your circumstance. They had Jesus in the boat with them. He was with them. They had just watched him heal the centurion soldier. They had just watched him cast out demons. They had just watched him do all of these miracles and heal all these people. He's laying there in the boat with them and they still think they're dying. They still can't, they, they don't realize he's right there with us. Yet they're fearful. And I can definitely relate to them. Because in the face of a storm, I think I respond just like the disciples did. But there's something we can learn from this. We don't have to respond that way. We don't have to be fearful. We can be faithful. We don't have to be fearful people. We can be faithful people. It means that, Lord, my life is in your hands. And what's the worst possible thing that could happen to me? Well, I could die, but then I could suffer before I die. So what? Life on this earth is short. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have eternity with him. You've given, you've, he's been given you that promise. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't abandon you when you're in the storm. He's walking right with you. And after his gentle rebuke of their faith, Jesus rebukes. And I like the word rebukes, the wind and the sea. And when what happened? There was a great calm. Calm happened. Can you just picture it? You're on the lake, you're on the boat, you think you're dying, you wake him up, and he says, what are you so afraid of? What do you mean what am I so afraid of? Don't you see these waves? And he goes, and he rebukes them. And immediately, calm sets in. And you go, yeah, what am I so afraid of? I got this. He's with me. Jesus is with me. Did I need to be fearful? Do you need to be fearful through it? No, you can be faithful through it. They go against one another. You can't be fearful and faithful at the same time. When you're, what creates the fear is you're looking at your circumstance and your own ability to solve it or to deal with it or to handle it. When, what happens with faith is you put your circumstance in God's hands and you trust that he's going to handle it whichever way is best for you in eternity. What a, what a, place, what a peaceful place to be. Now, we know the disciples would have been familiar and even memorized many of the psalms. And there's a particular psalm that speaks of this incident, or at least I believe it does. I'm going to read to you a passage from Psalm 107, verses 23 through 31. It's a psalm about thanksgiving to the Lord for his great works of deliverance. It outlines the journeys of Israel in the Old Testament, but listen carefully as I think it will describe this passage. And I can't help but wonder... Did this come into their mind the moment everything calmed down? So Psalm 107, starting in verse 23, just listen as I read. It says, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Have the apostles seen the works of the Lord? Sure they have. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea, they mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. Isn't that what's happening here on the sea? They cry, they, 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 they're up and down on the waves. Now they cry out to the Lord in the trouble. And, the, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still, then they are glad because they are quiet. 
So he guides them to their desired haven, the other side. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. The scripture tells us they marveled. They marveled. So the verse 27, so the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who could this be? None other than the son of man, than God in the flesh. You know, Jesus never promises us shelter from the storms of life. Storms are part of the waters that we navigate on. They're part, of, they're part of life, so to speak. You're going to encounter storms. You can't escape them. You've probably encountered many of them in your life by this time. But just like the storm on that Sea of Galilee that night, the storms of life will arise suddenly. They'll arise without warning when you least expect them. Maybe you've felt the... the, the the, the, the heartache of awaking on a morning that you think is going to be a normal day and then you get the phone call and then you get the news and then you realize the storm's coming and then or, or something drastically changes in your life in a moment you didn't wake up expecting that it happens it's going to take place please remember that Jesus is in your boat he's with you he hasn't forsaken you he will eventually calm the storm but it's out there on the water it's when you're in the storm that your faith is going to be built it's where you're going to grow. It's where you're going to learn to put your faith in him. When you can't figure out what else to do and you turn to him, he says, I'll take care of that problem. Not that he's going to rid you of the storm, but he's going to ride the storm with you. At some point, he will calm the waves. You see, the disciples learn to follow Jesus, not just to the storm, but they learn to follow him through the storm. And we need to be the same way. Because the storms of life are coming. Have you ever been to a place where you go, well, man, life's pretty good right now. There's got to be something bad coming. <laughs> it happens. You, you know it's coming. It's only a matter of time before you get that phone call, before that thing happens. And you can't live that way, but you know. You just think, Lord, I'm just glad you're going to be with me for it. I'm just glad you're going to be in my boat when those waves kick up and those winds start blowing and that sea gets rough. I'm glad you're going to be there with me. And I know it's easy to say, faith, not fear. I know that's an easy thing to say, but it's a much harder thing to live. But as Christians, we need to strive for that faith and not fear as that storm of life kicks up. Because it's going to happen. It's only a matter of time. They said, who is this man that even the winds and the sea obey him? Why is our faith so little? The examples that they had, we can look and say, why didn't you guys believe you saw the miracles. You saw the demons. You saw all of the things that he was doing. You heard his teaching. Why didn't you believe? And yet they would look back at us and say, you've got the Old Testament. You've got the New Testament. You've got 2,000 years of experience. Why don't you believe? Let's pray. Father, we still live in this fleshly body that wants to deceive us. And we look forward to the day where we can turn it in and get our spiritual bodies. But while we're here, Lord, we ask that you'd help us. We want to be people of faith and not fear. We don't want to walk through this life fearful of what might happen or even what's happening. We want to walk through this life with our faith and our lives in your hands. Lord, would you remind us of the promises that you've made? Would we hold on to those scriptures in your word that, so, that ring so true during the time of difficulty? Whatever it is, Lord, would you meet us individually and personally and give us those personal promises, not, not generic promises, but things for our life so that when those waves kick up and when that storm starts to rage, we can go, no, no, Jesus said we're going to the other side. We're going 
I don't know how we're going to get there. It doesn't even look like it's possible, but our Lord has given me a promise. And I'm holding on to that. Lord, may your promises and our faith replace the fear in our life. May we trust you with everything that we have. May we be less into this world and more into you. May we walk faithfully in obedience to you. And Lord, thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts. Thank you for shaping us, molding us. We need to hear it over and over again. We need to practice it. We need to learn it. So Lord, I just pray that as we study this scripture tonight, that it would resonate in our hearts. If we're in a storm, would we turn our fear into faith? If there's one coming, may we quickly remember that you're in the boat with us and you hang on to your promises. Lord, we thank you for who you are, what you've done, and what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.